Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Professor Gerhard Weinberg. I hope I said that name correctly. He has written several books on World War II history, among them German-Soviet relations, 1939-1945, The Road to World War II, A World at Ours, Global History of World War II, a victor- Visions of Victory, The Hope of Eight World War II Leaders, and several others. And as th- this book's titles might suggest, today's topic is going to be the Second World War. And I always begin... And I'm going to try to speak slowly so he, he can understand me under this recording. So I always begin to ask, how did you come about to study the Second World War? I came to study the Second World War and, and decided to do that in, in 1978 when I had completed and mailed off to the publisher, the University of Chicago Press, my work on the origins of World War II. I have been very interested in diplomatic history. And so uh, I had uh, written uh, a study, worked on and written. And in 1978, I was very dissatisfied with much of the literature on World War II because of several what seemed to me important defects of the then existing, we're talking of 1978, of the then existing literature. Those who wrote on the Second World War tended to concentrate either on the European part or the Pacific part, but with very little attention to the interrelationship of the two as they went forward. A second defect in my judgment of much of the literature on World War II then was that they tended to accept the fairy tales in the memoirs of German World War II military leaders, especially those whose memoirs had been translated into English. And from my own work earlier in the records, uh, German records and American records, it was obvious that these memoirs uh, in some places were interesting but tended on the whole uh, to be uh, omit important things 
and distort others. And the third defect, in my judgment, that led me then to do the book on World War II, was that there had been massive declassification of records in the United States and elsewhere in the late 60s and early 70s. And those writing and publishing about World War II were not taking the trouble to look at that material. And so uh, that was the third defect. And so I decided that I would write a history of the Second World War. Uh, and uh, of course, this time I'm teaching, but in addition to teaching, I'm doing research and writing. And it was it took me 14 years uh, till 1992 uh, to send off in the mail the manuscript to the publisher. And you will understand that my wife took a picture of me at the post office with a very large package. <laughs> so there's been a lot of debate on when the uh, Second World War actually started. Was it when Japan attacked Manchuria in 1931 or was it when Hitler invaded Poland in 1931? And what is your take on this? When do you feel that Second World War actually started? The war started, the World War started on the 1st of September, 1939, when Germany invaded Poland, which meant, as immediately happened, that Britain and France would declare war. And unlike 1938, when the Canadian South African and Australian governments had all warned the London government that they were not going to war. In 1939, those British dominions, uh, excuse me, in New Zealand, declared war on Germany. So this was a world war from the beginning Unlike, let us say, Mussolini from the Italian colonies in Northeast Africa invading to take over Abyssinia or Ethiopia, as it's now called, that was an African colonial war. When in 1931, the Japanese seized the peace of China and in 1937 got into a regular war, that was an East Asian war. What started in 1939 was a world war, a global conflict. If you like, I'll give you two very dramatic examples of this. Please do. In the war, as everybody knows, the allies invaded Italy and fought their way up the Italian peninsula. When they got up to the top in the last months of the war, 
they ran into a problem with another opponent of the Germans, and that was Marshal Tito, the leader of the partisans of Yugoslavia, who not only wanted to drive the Germans and Italians out of Yugoslavia, but wanted to take the Italian town of Trieste at the top of the Adriatic. The Western Allies used their troops in Northern Italy to save Trieste for Italy. The unit that did this was a division from New Zealand. New Zealand soldiers saved Trieste for Italy. When soldiers from New Zealand are fighting in Europe, that's a global war, mm. not a European war, not a South or East Asian war. That's a global, that's a world war. And an obvious example for the United States is that the longest battle in American history, in the history of this country, is the battle for Guadalcanal. Our troops, there were Marines, landed there in the first week of August 1942, and the Japanese in, evacuated the last of their soldiers in mid-February of 1943. American Marines and soldiers fought on Guadalcanal from early August 42 to mid-February 43. Now this was not because vast numbers of Americans liked to spend their summer vacations in Guadalcanal. Most Americans hadn't the foggiest notion where and what this was before. The United States chose this battlefield because we were concerned, our leaders were concerned that the Japanese advances into the Solomon Islands endangered the contacts and relations and military cooperation from the United States in the Western Hemisphere and Australia and New Zealand. And that's why our leaders decided to fight, as I said, the longest battle in American history from the beginning to today in order to seize and hold on to the island of Guadalcanal in the Solomons in the Southwest Pacific. So I'm, I'm sure, and I'm sure we will come back to the battle itself a little later in this episode. But let's begin, as you mentioned, when the the Nazi attack, Germans attacked, that staged a fake shooting of the Nazi soldiers. Oh, sorry, the Wehrmacht, not Nazi soldiers, but Wehrmacht soldiers that they dressed 
Polk Jewish prisoners in uniform placed on the Polish border and they would stage an attack that was a cautious belly for the Polish invasion in 1939. Well, because after 1918, there had been all of this endless debate as to who was responsible for the First World War, what we now call the First World War, and was then either called simply the World War or the Great War. Hitler and his immediate associates were concerned that there not be any such debate after this time when they were going to start a war. So uh, Hitler had his police assistant, Heinrich Himmler, arrange a fake incident with uh, uh, inmates of concentration camp dressed in Polish uniforms killed near the Gleiwitz radio station and pictures taken of this to prove that it was the Poles who had started the war. But no, nobody bought it, of course. Everyone knew. Nobody on earth, to the best of my knowledge, believed this. It is kind of to do a comparison. It's kind of what we saw in today's Ukrainian war, right? Where you know you saw Putin accused Ukraine of being aggressive, and then have and Donbass of it's kind of the same as we see his crisis belly for attacking Ukraine and Crimea, right? It's kind of similar in a sense. Yes. But as I said, nobody at the time took this seriously. And it was all really investigated only when after the war was over, when, of course, the area involved uh, was overrun by the uh, Soviet army, the Red Army. Mm. So let's talk about the battle for Poland, because as... As you know, the Polish army was heavily unequipped and they had, did not have enough men to. So the, it was just a matter of weeks before the Germans were able to overtake Poland at the time. Yes, the, 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 the Germans in, uh, prepared as well invaded and fought and uh, crushed uh, the uh, Polish military and what uh, proved to be a kind of precursor of what happened in the rest of the war. Um, the Germans very heavily bombed the Polish capital of Warsaw bombed other cities, and also began, interestingly enough, not after they had occupied, but already while they were fighting, 
large-scale slaughter of um, Polish intellectuals, Polish ministers, mm -hmm. the Jews, uh, and others. Uh, this kind of horror uh, which grew and characterized German military operations uh, for the rest of the war begins in the first battles. And then, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, the Germans were pleased that uh, they were urging the Russians to move and attack Poland from the east, which uh, they soon did, so that the two armies uh, could meet uh, not too far from the dividing line of the country that the Germans and Russians had agreed to before Germany invaded Poland. And this would be the, and do forgive me if I mixed World War, World War One line and the World War Two line, but I do believe this was the Hindenburg. I, uh, I cannot make out what you're saying. So. Sorry, I do believe this was the Ludendorff Hindenburg line. No, sorry, Hind sorry, Hindenburg and the Ribbentrop line, right? That they agreed to. It was the Ribbentrop Molotov. Yeah, Molotov, that's right. They had worked this out when in early August, around the 23rd of August, Ribbentrop was in Moscow. So let's talk about the, because it did go on to the next stage, the Eastern country as well, and that is, of course, Ukraine and uh, they, they to the start because the Ukrainians had had survived those who survived the Holodomor, the Ukrainian hunger famine in the thirties and so lived under Soviet occupation. They most of them welcomed, of course, though they would come to regret this later. They well at first uh, they welcomed the Wehrmacht takeover of Ukraine? Well, <clears throat> some in the Ukraine did in the summer of 1941 uh, welcome the Germans. And uh, during the whole period of occupation, there was some collaboration. But this changed relatively quickly. The Ukrainians, or most of them, began to learn from the horrendous behavior of the Germans that, if anything, they were trying to be worse than Stalin had been, so that the horrors, especially the famine and collectivization, uh, of the uh, Soviet period that Ukrainians suffered under and very strongly resented, uh, this got to be changed into being just one of those awful things as the Germans 
uh, strove, in fact, to behave even worse. Mm. Because the long-term expectations were fundamentally different. Mm. The long-term expectation of Stalin was a communist subordinate populace agriculturally and uh, uh, in other ways rich part of the Soviet Union, whereas the German anticipation was the death by starvation of the bulk of the Ukrainian population as it was replaced, replaced by German settlers. This was a part of the world where the population was going to be exclusively German. There were some Germans who had migrated to the Ukraine in prior centuries, but nothing like the tens of millions that the Germans planned explicitly to starve to death so that they could be replaced by German settlers. Mm. And as the Ukrainians saw the early stages of this, you will understand <laughs> that was not a way to recruit them. Mm. Now, something that Hitler spoke a long time with time about and one of the reasons why he was so interested in the extermination of the East, as he has spoke about himself, is the need for Lebensraum or living space, as uh, he put it. And was there really a need for Lebensraum at the time, or was it just something he used as an excuse to invade these countries? Was there really a Overgrowth of population in Germany that there was need for to expand at this time. One needs to look at this in terms of experience and how one interprets experience. Large numbers of Germans had in the nineteenth century left Germany and come to the United States and lived and were an important part of the development of the United States. Hitler thought that that was a bad thing, that instead of leaving Central Europe and crossing the Atlantic and uh, creating a farm in South Dakota, Germany should conquer as soon as possible the Soviet Union so that Germans some of whom had already moved there in prior centuries, could in fact take over the whole thing. Mm. And it is worth noting 
but rarely mentioned, that one of the things Hitler planned was a new railway system for Europe with a railroad track even wider than the Russian railroad track, which was a bit wider than the standard Western and Central European railroad track. And in the planning for this new railway that Hitler was interested in and worked on, one line, a very important one, was to go from Berlin to Vladivostok, the Russian port on the Pacific Ocean. That's a long way. And you think that's Trans-Siberian Railway is long? <laughs> so let, let's, let's talk about the, the, because he conquered Poland right at this point and he turns his way. I, I, yeah. I'm not so, so and, and this, do forgive me if I talk a little bit too fast, but so he conquered Poland and he turns his way to the east, west, sorry, not the east, but to the west and one of the neighboring countries, of course, is France. And this is when he started to use the famous Blitzkrieg. And how quick, but how quickly after the conquest of Poland does it turn to France and start to invade the Fr French territory with his infamous Blitzkrieg? Well, uh, the. Uh big operation in the West, he had hoped to start still in the late fall of 1939. And a whole series of developments, I don't want to go into the details now, had led first to uh, an intermediate operation to control Denmark and Norway. Mm. And then in May of 1940, uh, the attack, and this time not just through Belgium, but into Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg, and then into France. And for someone like Hitler, who had himself been on the Western Front in the First World War, as a soldier in the Bavarian army, the rapidity of the crushing of France this time was, of course, a, if you will, reaffirmation of his own views and hopes. And we tend to forget that his original hope had been while rushing west across France was to invade the Soviet Union and head east to the Urals in the fall of 1940 still. Mm. But again, complications along the way led to postponements. Mm. And eventually, as we all know now, the invasion of the Soviet Union occurred on the 22nd of June, 1941. Hmm. I want to go 
back a little bit because he mentioned the joint invasion of Denmark and Norway. And I want to talk a little bit about the Battle of Norway because the or especially the Battle of Norway, because even though it would be that was the first, and this is quite significant, especially in Norwegian history, as you might might know, this was the first as well Allied victory in the Second World War. Though it would be a short-lived one, is still rather significant, and it's for me as at least it's kind of patriotic in a sense that it, but like you said, though it was a short-lived victory, they will soon take over again. It's still the first victory in the Second World War. The, uh, the German Navy had been arguing in favor of a German occupation of Norway already in the 1930s. From their point of view, this was the opening into the Atlantic mm. and into the naval war against Britain. Narvik is one of the more important ports in the in what in Norway is the far north and we tend to forget that during the years that Germany and the Soviet Union were allied from 39 to 41 Stalin was so enthused about this that he did things for his dear friend Adolf that he would never dream of doing later on for Churchill and Britain or Roosevelt and the United mm. States. And one of those things that, as I said, he did for the Germans was to provide them with the base not far from Murmansk at Zapadnaya Litsa Bay up in the north mm. so that that not only helped them send warships into the Atlantic, but was very important for the Narvik fighting because the German, the number of the German ships that came to Narvik and were essential to the German victory at Narvik that you just mentioned, they came yeah. <laughs> from a base the Germans call it Basis North, North Base, in the Soviet Union. Uh, as I said, it was one of a number of things that Stalin did for his dear friend Adolf Hitler that he, after June 41, would never dream of doing for Churchill's Britain or Roosevelt's United States. And... Mm. Um... And as you know, they would station, and this quite a lot of soldiers in for one tiny country such as Norway. They would have four hundred thousand soldiers there during the war. But compared to Denmark, which was rather a relaxed occupation, if you will, and what was what was the need for so many soldiers in Norway compared to let's say Denmark? Well. The German soldiers who fought there simply fought there to conquer. That was it, as far as they were concerned. Uh, and uh, there was a 
substantial garrison in no German garrison in Norway until the surrender of May 1945. And <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, there was resistance. Quite a lot of resistance. I'm sorry? Quite a lot of resistance from Norway. It, there was that, but uh, it never seriously challenged German control. Mm. And it was only in the very end of 44, beginning of 45, that the Red Army, the Russian forces, uh, began to move into that uh, northeastern corner of Norway. Mm. But Hitler was always quite sure that the British would land in Norway again. And periodically, Churchill thought of what they called Operation Jupiter, that is to say, an invasion of Norway. It never came off, a long, complicated story, but the Germans kept about a quarter million German mm. soldiers uh, in Norway uh, for the rest of the war. And of course, they used the naval bases there very effectively for the Battle of the Atlant in the Atlantic with submarines going from there into the Atlantic to, to sink Allied ships. The other side of it all was that Norway also had a place uh, that was very important for the development of a resource, heavy water, that was needed for the mm. German atomic bomb project. And the Allies undertook a whole series in connection with underground in Norway to destroy or at least damage uh, those things in their efforts, successful in large part, to delay the Germans in the race uh, to construct the first atomic bombs. And we should also add that one of the reasons why Hitler did attack Norway and Denmark was exactly because he said that, oh, he, Britain, they broke Norway's neutrality because they laid, they laid mines in the water to avoid German invasion, to try to avoid a German invasion. And that was one of the reasons for his own invasion of to protect the Norwegian people from Brit British invasion of Norway. Well, he, he figured that that provided a very good excuse. Uh, but uh, the real reason was to conquer the area. Uh, and uh, one should also not forget, you mentioned Narvik and the fighting there, that one of the reasons that the Germans in the summer of 1940 could not invade England was that in the naval fighting off Narvik, the Germans lost a very large number of their warships, especially of their destroyers. And that was an element in the 
decision uh, after the loss of the air combat not to try an invasion of England. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry for derailing a little bit. I just wanted to talk a brief moment about the Norway Norwegian invasion. And for me personally, as I am a Norwegian myself, it is. I feel like it is uh, something I want to bring up as a part of my his my own history. But I want to go back to France because, as we know, they conquered it rather quickly, unlike in 1914, where they barely moved an inch in after four years. This time, they would conquer it, maybe not immediately, but quick, at least rather quickly. But one of the, one of the as well, it, there was talk that Hitler could have used the French army as... Uh, as his own, but why didn't they choose to use the French army under the Wehrmacht? Well, the Germans adopted this new plan, uh, assuming that the French and British, when they invaded, when the Germans invaded Belgium and Holland, would send large forces up there to stop this, that uh, they would cut them off. And as we well know, they were successful in this. The British and French forces cut off, were evacuated to England, hmm. the overwhelming majority of them, over 300,000, something over 200,000 British and something over 100,000 French. But one has to see this also as an impact on the morale in France, and the prior poli political infighting in France, and what is often ignored is that the Allies had held and beaten the Germans in 1918, not only with French armies and British armies, but with growing American armies. And the decision of the United States population in 1920 to stop the earth and get off has to be seen as very important in the difference between what happened in 1918, when the Germans launched their big offensive to win the war, and in 1940, when they launched their big offensive to win the war in the West, uh, there were no American hundreds of thousands of soldiers there, with more coming every day. Uh, we, we tend to forget that we had that the American leadership in 1920 elected uh, decided, uh, as I said, to get off the earth, to stop the earth and get off. It never had occurred to Harding and the new president, Coolidge, his vice president who succeeded him, that the earth would continue to turn without permission from Washington. It did. And one of the most dramatic 
signs of that continued turning of the earth was the German victory in May, June of 1940 in the West, where they had been halted and defeated in 1918. Now, now before we go to the humility, Second Treaty of Versailles, if you will, call, for the lack of better words, I want to tell you mentioned it briefly, but we have to mention, of course, the humiliating Allied retreat at Dunkirk. And so let's talk a little bit before we go on to the Versailles signing about Dunkirk for a little bit. I'm sorry, I could not make out what you're Oh, uh, do forgive me. Uh, it is Dunkirk. Before we go into the signing of the Versailles with Hitler and the French government, I want to talk a little bit about the evacuation of Dunkirk first. Oh, well, what happened, as I mentioned, was that the uh, Germans were successful in first assessing what the British and French were likely to do and adjusting their offensive to this by thrusting behind the forces that had gone in, the British and French forces that had gone into Belgium and Holland and coming to the English Channel. And they wanted to make sure this time that unlike their early victories in 1914, this time they would move south in central France, take Paris and move on from there. And that in a sense uh, made it at least conceivable for the British and French to evacuate the troops that the Germans had cut off. And that's what the evacuation from Dunkirk uh, meant. Uh, and while most of the 100,000 or so French soldiers evacuated uh, later on went home, the couple hundred thousand British soldiers who got to go back to England were of enormous importance in the first instance for British public morale and willingness to continue fighting. And then, of course, were uh, being uh, reorganized as forces to fight any German invasion after France surrendered and the Germans began their planning of uh, Operation Zele Sea Lion uh, to cross the channel and invade England. And uh, for a number of reasons, then uh, decided not even to try but I was in England at the time, and I very much recall my fellow students in the boarding school 
taking bets on which day of the week <laughs> the Germans would come. Was it going to be on a Monday or a Tuesday, a Wednesday or a Thursday? I'm not kidding. I remember that. The more important thing I remember was... That, a that's kid. a rather sinister thing to bet about, isn't it? Yes. I mean, a huge bomb was dropped into the grounds of the school. Mm. Fortunately, it did not go off or I wouldn't be here. But we could see it when the uh, special units that unearthed unexploded bombs came and dug this contraption, this huge thing, out of the school grounds. And we could, <coughs> excuse me, tell that if this thing had gone off, that whole side of the school where ironically was the air raid shelter where we were at the time when it was dropped, everything would have been smashed. So can I ask who won the bets? You said you were betting on when the Germans come. Who won the bets? Nobody, because the Germans didn't come any day. Fair enough. But, uh, let's go... Because as you know, as you know, Hitler did not really want a war with Britain, and he wanted to have peace negotiations with the UK. As you know now, it didn't happen. But according to the latest movie with Gary Oldman, there was seemed to be a consideration should we negotiate peace. But of course, Winston Churchill eventually in his "We shall fight them on the beaches" speech, he. Rejected peace talks with Hitler, but was it likely? There was never likely that there would be peace talks negotiations, was there? I'm not sure I understand your question. The peace talks negotiations with Germany that Hitler wanted to with Britain to have peace talks. Yeah, well, he thought about this. This is the way to cope with this issue, but. Uh... There was very, there were a few people in England who were interested, but they were a distinct minority. And, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> the leadership, not only Churchill, but uh, his predecessor, Chamberlain, and the overwhelming majority of the population and the members of parliament, both houses of parliament, mm. were not going to submit to the Germans. And so, uh, as uh, everybody knows, uh, the uh, Germans tried to get the Brits to change by bombing. I remember being in London at the time uh, in uh, July, in August of 1940, when the Blitz, as it is called, started. And the reaction uh, of people, and I remember it from the air raid shelter in the apartment building where I was staying with my aunt and uncle was not let's give in and stop this, but rather 
let's build a bigger air force and do this to them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the notion of uh, surrender uh, or negotiation, I'm not saying there were no, there's nobody. There were a few, and there were a few uh, leaders who thought of this. Mm -hmm. But the overwhelming majority of the population and the overwhelming majority of those in any kind of office was very much opposed to that idea. We're going to defend ourselves and uh, we'll let them have it when the time comes. Another essential part of the war is the North African campaign under Ernst Rommel, I believe. So let's talk a little bit about, and I, I don't know how much we can talk about them, but if you would, that would be great if you could talk a little bit about the SAS as, as well for a little bit and their contribution to the, to the North African campaign. Yes, well, <coughs> Mussolini decided uh, in June of 1940, that he would join his dear friend Adolf. It was now safe to go to war with England and France. And he did win one tiny victory. <laughs> the Italian colonies in Northeast Africa, Eritrea and Italian Somaliland, had been the basis for his years before conquest <clears throat> of Abyssinia or Ethiopia, as it's now called. But those forces could conquer British Somaliland. That was a uh, local uh, tactical victory. But then the British increased their forces in the Sudan and Egypt and Kenya, the British possessions which surround, if you will, the Italian ones. And in a series of campaigns, conquered them. The other side of this was that the Italians tried to take Egypt by sending their, using their force in Libya, which they had conquered earlier from the Ottoman Empire and move from Libya, move east into Egypt. And in 1940 and 41, the, excuse me, the, uh, Italians drove deeply into Egypt, but in early December of 1941, the British defeated the Italian forces at Sidi Barani in Egypt, drove them out of Egypt, drove into the Italian colony of Libya. At that point, Hitler got worried. <clears throat> and in 
By this time, the British <clears throat> had conquered Italian East Africa, and he was afraid, and this was undoubtedly a correct judgment on his part, that if the Italians lost their last colony, Mussolini might be overthrown. And so he sent a German general who had done rather well in the campaign in France, Rommel, to North Africa with German troops to halt the British advance and drive into Egypt again. And that is exactly what Rommel did. He was eventually halted there at Alamein, and then in October of 42, defeated there by Montgomery's uh, British Eighth Army. Mm -hmm. And eventually, the Italians and the Germans who had come to help them <laughs> were driven west, west, west to meet the American and British forces that landed in November of 41, a couple of weeks after the Battle of El Alamein in Northwest French Africa. And eventually, although the Germans sent troops into Tunisia and fought there until May of 43, but then when all of North Africa was under allied control and the Western allies began to invade Europe by crossing the Mediterranean to Sicily, as Hitler had feared, Mussolini was overthrown, put in a jail, rescued by the Germans, and put on a new uh, sort of satellite government, Italian government in what was left to the Germans and Italian leaders in Northern Italy until he, was, he and his mistress were killed Bipartisans. And we will come back to that later, of course. But I want to talk a little bit about as well on the North African campaign because there was. Uh, I, I was still want to talk a little bit about the North African campaign because, as uh, as something that was created rather significantly, at or I don't know how significant they actually were uh, made it out to be, is the SAS who would go behind enemy lines created by David Sterling and they would bomb en enemy planes behind to halt the, the invasion. So how essential were the SAS by under David Sterling to to this to the North African campaign? Well they were I would argue helpful and useful. I'm not sure they were essential. The key fighting was done by American and British troops and eventually some French troops. 
And the decisive fighting was in Tunisia. And in that fighting, first the Americans suffered their first major defeat in the European and African part of the war, Kasserine Pass in southern Tunisia, but recovered and uh, alongside the British took Tunis and Deserta. And this time there was a not an evacuation, but a big surrender. The figures were roughly the other way around, uh, uh, a couple hundred thousand uh, Italian and a hundred thousand German troops surrender in early May of 43 mm. in Tunisia. Mm. Another one that would be badly damaged, of course, and we would come again, we will come back to him later, is Stauffenberg, who would be famously important character under the Operation Valkyrie. But now I want to talk about, and I want to switch side of the war to the Asian side, because I want to talk as well, because as I, I was in Singapore. You want to talk about what? The Asians, the Asian side of the oh, war. Oh, the Asians, yes. B sure. Because, because I, I was visiting Singapore recently and I was in the Imperial War Museum there. And I want to talk as begin as well with the Japanese takeover of the British colonies and Japanese. And of course, we have to. But, but before that, I want to talk about the famous rape of Nanjing, if you will. Well, you want me to talk about Singapore? I, mean, I would want to talk about that after, but first, sorry if, if, if there is a bit of confusion, but I want to talk about the begin with the rape of Nanjing. I'm not sure I'm saying this right. I'm sorry, I'm not getting your question. Oh, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so sorry for the confusion. Uh, you know, the rape of Nanjing, if, if you understand. Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry, if, if, I don't know how to say it correctly, so, so do forgive me if I said, I, said it wrong. What, you, what happens is that in the summer in July of 1937, a series of incidents is utilized by the Japanese military warmongers to initiate a real war with the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, who are trying to, and have been for some years, to modernize China in a variety of ways, including the military, in which, at least to begin with, they had some help from the Germans. And what happens is that the Japanese, in a sense, you could say, 
periodically decide to advance further. They had taken Manchuria back in 1931, uh, made it into a fake state that they controlled. Uh, they now uh, take over more of China and the Chinese are divided to some extent between the nationalists and the communists. And some of the time they fight the Japanese and some of the time they fight each other. It's a very difficult and complicated situation over a period of years. But when in, as I mentioned in the summer of 37, the Japanese military make a major push. The Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek resist and they get some assistance. They get some assistance from the United States. They get a minimal amount from the Russians, the Soviet Union, I mean, and they get a teeny bit from the British. It is a horrendous war because in the fighting, the Japanese uh, simply slaughter practically all prisoners of war are not alive the day after they surrender. The Japanese slaughter them. They slaughter large numbers of civilians in Chinese villages that they overrun. And in the process, uh, simply kill large numbers of people there and rape the women and then kill them. And it is in this process that there is the famous or infamous, notorious rape of major Japanese, Chinese city of Nanking, in which you can see different figures, and I won't uh, you know, argue as to which one it is. Sorry, let me just put, put it on pause for a second. Just a minute. Sorry. Yeah, we're back. So, uh, in Hankow and in Nanking, but especially in Nanking, which had been a kind of temporary capital after the Japanese had taken big king or however you want to pronounce the capital, the Japanese slaughter civilians, kill prisoners of war, set fire to portions of the city. And this is referred to as the rape of Nanking because it is a more extensive and systematic slaughtering than the, I'm not saying it was nice, 
but it is a but what had happened in other cities was more, if you will, incidental. Uh, in Nanking, it's it's tens, hundreds of thousands, whichever figure you want to take. It is estimated. And, it is estimated that there was two to three hundred thousands, but the historians of the East. Asian Pacific War estimates that the number is far higher than 300,000, as is stated. Yes. Uh, very often in these kinds of arguments over figures, certainly when it comes to both the slaughter in China and the slaughter in the occupied German-occupied parts of the Soviet Union, the higher estimate... <laughs> are usually closer to the truth uh, than the lower ones. But uh, these are things which are practically impossible to resolve clearly. Now, now I want to go back to, as I mentioned, Singapore was a British colony at the time. And uh, as I said, I visited, was so lucky enough to visit Singapore a few weeks ago, actually. But the Japanese takeover of Singapore as well, it was quite brutal affair. Well, I think that the obvious thing, which is nowadays not mentioned as frequently as I think it should be, is the difference between what happens in the Malayan Peninsula and Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines. Hmm. In the Malayan Peninsula, in mid-February of 42, the British forces surrender. They are more numerous than the Japanese troops who take them prisoner. Mid-February of... In the Philippines, the American and Filipino troops fight on Bataan against overwhelmingly numerous Japanese forces until late April. And the Japanese do not get to take the island of Corregidor in Manila Bay until May of 42. In other words, the Japanese discover, they learn the hard way, if you will, that it's easier to crush British forces than American and Filipino forces who resist much longer uh, than the British. Hmm. And before we go back to the European side, I want to talk a little bit about how the Japanese and German alliance, how they came into the Axis power as well. What ha ha in, in the pre-war years, <clears throat> there had been diplomatic arrangements and ties between the Germans and the Japanese, who had been, of course, on opposite sides in the First World War. The Japanese had been on the Allied side and had taken some things from the Germans uh, in that war. But <clears throat> they are now 
nominally allied. And what happens is that when the Germans lose the Battle of Britain and find they can't invade England, they urge the Japanese to use this time to seize all British possessions, India, Australia, New Zealand, islands in the Pacific, and that that will drive Britain out of the war. The Japanese government responds with the explanation, yes, we plan to do that in the French and Dutch colonies also, but we plan to do it in 1946. Mm. And the Germans, who are asking them to do this in 1940, very quickly figure out that the Japanese pick 1946 not by throwing darts at calendars, but by the fact that the United States Congress had voted that the Philippines would be independent in 1944 and the United States would give up its naval bases in the Philippines two years later. Mm -hmm. Higher mathematics suggested to the Japanese that they could head south and take over British, French, and Dutch colonies in 1946 without getting involved with the United States, which by that time would no longer have the Philippines. The Germans figured this out and told the Japanese, don't wait. Who knows what those Americans will do in those years? They're building up their navy. If you, since the Germans, that is Hitler, planned to go to war with the United States anyway, but ways down, told them that if and when you do go, we'll be with you. And so you have this year-long argument. The Germans pushing the Japanese and Roosevelt trying to stall them because it was Roosevelt's view that if they stall long enough, they would realize that their assumption that Germans would win the war was not correct. So you have for a whole, from the fall of 1940 to the fall of 41, this race between Hitler and Roosevelt, Hitler pushing the Japanese, Roosevelt trying, spending an enormous amount of time on negotiations to stall them. Hitler wins this race by one week. Wow. He wins it by one week because the Japanese decide at the end of October 41 to go. If they had waited one more week, they would have seen the German defeat before Moscow and the Italian defeat in Egypt 
and not been as certain as they were that Germany would win the war. But uh, they were still, before they struck, before they attacked Pearl Harbor, as they decided to do as the start, they checked to make sure that both Hitler and Mussolini still would immediately go to war with the United States uh, if they did strike. And Hitler and Mussolini reassured them. And as I said, uh, if they'd waited, <laughs> after a year of waiting, they had waited one more week, they might have changed their minds. But then they went. And we know that when they struck Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 41, Hitler was very worried about the fact that he was not in Berlin to immediately go through the declaration of war procedures. Mm. He was at his headquarters in East Prussia because of the crisis on the Eastern Front. So he told Admiral Rader, the head of the German Navy, start sinking right away everything American that you can. And uh, Hitler got to Berlin as fast as he could to give the good news of war with the United States to the assembled German parliament and go through the diplomatic procedures. And as the uh, German foreign minister von Ribbentrop told his underling Weizsäcker, the secretary of state, a great power declares war, it is not declared war on. As I said, Hitler was in a hurry and very upset that he wasn't in Berlin when the Japanese started. So just as soon as he could get things going, he and Mussolini on the 11th of December declared war on the United States. But by that time, Admiral Rader had already told the German submarines, sink them, sink them, sink them. And as you probably know, much of that sinking was off the coast of North Carolina, where a fair number of the wrecks are still there today. Hmm. Now, before we go into the Soviet invasion, I want to talk a little bit about the occupation in Poland, and of course, I'm referring to Holocaust for a second. So I want to take a second to talk about the creation of Auschwitz after the Polish invasion and use of Auschwitz and transportation of Jews to the infamous death camp. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have not, when and why does the Holocaust start? Now, uh, now, I want to talk a little bit about the Holocaust before we go into the Soviet invasion of yes. Russia. Sorry, the, sorry, the German invasion of Russia. I want to talk a little bit about the Holocaust first. Well, uh... We know that Hitler was in favor of the extermination of all Jews. And he made this public in Germany, starting in, we have the text of the speech, in April of 1920. But that wasn't something you did from one day to the next. First, he had to get to be chancellor. <laughs> 
as he did in 1933. And then <clears throat> they could start imposing restrictions on Jews in Germany. And those start in 1933. And what you have thereafter is a steady escalation of the restrictions and the whatnot. A, a striking example that I know a little something about for my own family is that in 1933, a couple of months after Hitler's chancellor, any and all Jews serving in bureaucratic positions at any level were to be fired. At that time, Hindenburg, Field Marshal Hindenburg is still president of Germany. And he insists with Hitler that those who had fought for Germany at the front in the First World War have to be exempted from this discharge. And that's what happens. In early August of 1934, the next year, Hindenburg dies. And the next day, <laughs> those Jews, Jewish government officials, bureaucratic officials who had been exempt, and that includes my father, are all fired. And there is just one new restriction after another. And in November of 1938, there is a massive assault on Jews. And a part of that, that is the two parts of it, which I think are most notorious. You are referring to Kristallnacht, of course. Are the destruction, yes, Kristallnacht, is the destruction of Jewish houses of worship all across the country and the arrest and taken to concentration camps of about 30,000 Jewish men. And uh, then a couple of days later, all Jewish students uh, who are in public schools are, f are thrown out. Also including the Frank family who then flees to Holland. Yes, I mean, they, uh, those uh, who were not, uh, had not been nationalized uh, are driven out and uh, a couple of hundred are killed in the process and some die in the concentration camps. But then uh, there are further restrictions and the campaign that is started in June 1941 uh, against the Soviet Union, a part of the preparations for that invasion 
are what you might call traditional military preparations. Soldiers move from France to occupied Poland. Uh, uh, more tanks and airplanes factory. But a part of the preparation is the preparation of the systematic killing of Jews in what will be the newly occupied areas as the German forces advance to the Ural Mountains. And special units are created who, among other things, will have the job of killing Jewish men, women, and children systematically. The SS, you mean. And that is these Einsatzgruppen, as they're called, and special employment groups are organized, one attached to each of the yeah. army groups into which the German military is being organized for the invasion. So that the while lots of Jews have already been killed, especially in occupied Poland, the systematic killing really starts with the invasion of the Soviet Union and the occupation of the Eastern Poland that had been turned over to the Soviets, the Baltic states, and since Romania is allied with Germany, in the areas of the Ukraine that the Romanian army moves into when it invades as Germany's ally in June. So what you have is on various communities and so on, you have the systematic killing that we now call the Holocaust starts in June of 1941 and continues until May of 1945. It is interesting to me that Cyclone B was originally a farming product that it turned out and ended to become this notorious killing and part of what became famous about the Holocaust, the Cyclone B, if I remember correctly, that it was start, it really started out as a farming product. Well, what you want to keep in mind is that when you're planning and trying to implement plans for enormous numbers of kill, people to be killed, uh, they, you have issues. Mm. You have to recruit the people to do it. Mm. You have to find ways to kill large, large numbers. You have to find ways to dispose of enormous numbers of bodies after you've killed the people. Mm. Uh, there are this, this is new. And the Germans experiment. The reality is that they had begun experimenting, ironically, on their own people in the program to kill the handicapped and the elderly mm -hmm. 
Germans and slaughtering badly wounded German soldiers from the First and then later Second World War. That's where, ironically, the Germans do much of their experimenting. Because again, if you're slaughtering people, taking them out of their current old folks' homes, and then taking them someplace to be slaughtered, uh, you have to decide how and whom. You have to decide how not to kill one person by shooting, but how do you kill large numbers? How do you dispose of the bodies of large numbers? In those things, as I think Henry Friedlander has shown very well in his book on euthanasia, uh, the Germans do their experimenting so that when that starts in 1939, 1940. So when in 41, they start the systematic killing of Jews, not the killing of some Jews, but the systematic killing of all Jews, they are applying and then further developing lessons that they have acquired in the killing of Germans. And one of the ironies of it all is that the German, there is resistance to the killing of Germans. Some of the priests talk about it, some of the bishops. And so in this August of 1941, officially, the Germans halt this program, but in reality, continue that one, the killing of handicapped, badly wounded, and very elderly Germans, continue that. And by the summer of 44, they have managed to kill their badly handicapped World War One veterans, their own, you understand, mm -hmm. and start the systematic killing of their own badly wounded World War Two veterans. And it is in the hospitals where this is done, and it is the allies who occupy Germany in 44-45 who stop this and ironically halt the systematic killing of patients in the German hospitals and save the lives of thousands, probably tens of thousands of German World War II veterans who had been badly wounded in the fighting, none of this was their fault, but whom the regime was determined to kill. And of course, it stops not only the killing of the wounded and elderly Germans, it stops the killing, systematic killing of Jews. Now, of course, mainly this was the SS job under him, 
supervision of Heinrich Himmler. But and then there and there is this and the, uh, Peter Wilson put this in his book as well. I think in his recent Iron and Blood book, and I do believe that he said that up until recently. There has been the idea of the German soldier who just did his job and then let the SS soldiers to do the atrocity part. But there has, I believe this is recently new, uh, maybe not new, but from the public newly that the German soldiers as well were a lot, a lot of them were took part in the atrocities committed under the Second World War by the Wehrmacht and the SS and just a very few bravely resisted that they were just doing their job. I don't know. I could not make out what your question oh, was. So how do we know the percentage of how many Wehrmacht soldiers and how many resisted committing atrocities along with the SS soldiers that, you, you know, that they wasn't necessarily good soldier but they, they didn't commit atrocities as well in the Wehrmacht. Yes, the, the, uh, the uh, procedures were such that eventually, if not the first couple of weeks in uh, 1941, the killing of Jews becomes a systematic operation. And... Uh, while there are the special units established for this, they can't do it all by themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so increasingly, uh, this also becomes the job of the ordinary German soldiers. And <clears throat> increasingly, uh, this is simply a part, and it's called very often, in the German literature of the time, I'm talking about the contemporary, it's referred to as anti-partisan warfare. So when the German soldiers are shooting three and four-year-olds, these are partisans. Uh, they're guerrillas. And uh, obviously, <laughs> they're not. And, the German soldiers know that, but this is the terminology, if you will, that gets to be applied. It is the wartime portion of the way the war incident starts with the concentration camp inmates put into Polish uniforms and killed uh, as Polish soldiers invading uh, peaceful Germany. So now what you have is everybody who is loosely killed, systematically killed by the soldiers is very often referred to as partisans. I don't want to suggest that they weren't actually partisans. In my first job after my PhD, I wrote and studied partisan warfare and have published uh, on it. But uh, the three and four and five-year-old kids were not partisans. Uh, they were being killed because they were Jewish. And uh, the army 
soldiers were very much uh, involved in this. Not every one of them, obviously, but lots of them. Now let's talk about the Soviet sorry, the German invasion of the Soviet Union for a little bit. And this was came as quite a surprise to Stalin, who the first two days refused to believe. And I believe this is partly why they were so successful in the early start of the invasion, because he refused to believe that his like you said, his good friend Hitler could invade the Soviet Union after the pact that they made. And uh, the, so the, so several soldiers in the Soviet Ar Red Army, they died because they were told not to fire back when they said that they're firing, firing on, Stal on a Stalin, refused to believe this. And so, but how long time did it take under Soviet invasion? So German invasion. Sorry, I keep saying Soviet for some reason. But how long time did it take for the, before Stalin realized that this is real? They are actually invading us, and uh, we have to do something now. Well, what one has to keep in mind is that Stalin was much enthused about the idea of the capitalist countries fighting each other. The longer and the harder the Germans, French, British, anybody else fought, the weaker they would become uh, over time. And uh, he, it was his judgment that the Allies were potentially stronger than Germany, and therefore he would help the Germans as much as possible, and he did. And as I already mentioned, he would do all kinds of things for his dear friend Adolf that he would never dream of doing for Churchill or Roosevelt uh, when after the Germans attacked the Soviet Union. The public in the Soviet Union was pleased that they were not at war again. The First World War had not been a pleasant experience for the Russians any more than it had for anybody else. And the other side of this is that Stalin assumed that as long as Germany had to fight in the West, it would not open another front in the East. But he simply never quite realized that Hitler acted on his beliefs, not on Stalin's beliefs, but on his beliefs. And that from Hitler's point of view, the land that Germany was to conquer was not in Luxembourg, but in the Soviet Union. And as the Germans prepared in 19, 
41 for war against invasion of the Soviet Union. Stalin had all the intelligence about this. But in fact, refused to believe it. There was uh, there were spies inside Germany. There was an important spies organ in Tokyo. The Japanese knew that the Germans were about to invade uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, the Germans, the Soviet spy Zorga. Uh, passed all the details that they had on to Stalin, but he simply would not believe that Hitler would act on what was clearly his uh, Hitler's belief. And so when the German invasion comes in June of 1941, he is surprised and the Red Army has not, number one, has not been gotten properly ready. And number two, he has weakened it greatly by the purge of thousands, and I do mean thousands of officers in the military mm. purges of the Red Army in 1937 38. No, no, sorry for interrupting you for a second. I don't do want to mention this story. Because as you know, as you know, Zuko, who would later become the famous general on uh, of uh, Soviet Union, when he was summoned to, and you mentioned the purge of the of the Soviet soldiers. I just wanted to mention this story. And when he was summoned to Moscow, he genuinely wrote a farewell letter to his wife because he thought he was going to die, and, and that this was the last time he would see her and that, that Stalin was going to execute him. Well, uh, what we need to remember is that so many uh, thousands, literally, of those purged in the 37, 38 military purges by Stalin, the vast majority were killed, but lots of them were put into camps and some of them were released from the camps after the Germans attacked. Rokossovsky is perhaps the most famous, who becomes a marshal and plays an important role in the, leading the Red Army to beat the Germans. <laughs> but obviously the ones who'd been executed in 1937 or 38 or 39 were not leading any Russian troops in 1941, 3, 4, or 5, uh, the army was in a bad shape. And uh, uh, that made it a bit easier for the Germans. But they had, they, just as Stalin believed and acted on the, his garbage, so the Germans acted and belie believed and acted on their garbage. These Slavic people were racially inferior. They couldn't possibly stand up to the racially superior Germans. And 
uh, the notion, in other words, that the Russians could, over a period of time, halt the Germans and then beat them was an inconceivable part of things from the German perspective. Mm -hmm. And ironically, not only did they have to learn the hard way that the Slavic people were not inherently inferior mm -hmm. and therefore not good soldiers, but rather that in addition to their being able to be soldiers like anybody else, they became more enthusiastic about fighting the Germans because of the way the Germans behaved in the Soviet Union, both vis-a-vis -vis civilians and vis-a-vis -vis prisoners of war. The Germans killed or let die over three million prisoners of war on the Eastern Front. And so uh, it all came as a terrible shock, but uh, they acted on their beliefs and uh, Stalin, surprisingly enough, acted on his beliefs. So let's, of course, talk about one of the turning points in the war, which is... I'm sorry, I'm not... I'm let, let's, uh, let's talk about one of the turning points of the war, which I, I do believe is Stalingrad. And there is a reason why Hitler chose Stalingrad, which is, which is because of the name, because it was a psychological... If he won Stalingrad, it, so he thought it would have been... A decisive victory for a blow to Stalin himself, and uh, we should also mention that the plan for Leningrad, which which Saint Petersburg was called at the time, he his plan was to starve out the population and level the city to the ground. So his focus at this time was Stalingrad, which under the sixth division, which would lead the battle under General Paulus. So let's talk about Paulus and the sixth division under. Stalingrad and the Battle of Stalingrad, which is one of the more famous battles in World War II. After their defeat on the Eastern Front in December of 1941, the planning for the war on the East in 42 concentrated instead of the Central Front, the Southern part of the front. They wanted to retake uh, whatever the Ukraine they had lost in the winter of 41-42. And very important, <clears throat> they were going to get the oil area of the Caucasus. But if you went all the way down to the Caucasus, you look at a map and see where Baku is. Uh, there was the obvious possibility of the whole forces being cut off by a Soviet drive on Rostov, as they had successfully done before, and taken Rostov back uh, in their winter offensive in the winter of 41-42. So 
you had to, from the German point of view, uh, not necessarily the city of Stalingrad, but the area to make sure that the rear of your Caucasus forces uh, were sufficiently protected and the Soviet uh, control of the Don River uh, for ships uh, was ended. And so you had this, if you will, double thrust uh, into the Caucasus where the Germans, in fact, did seize one set, the northernmost set of wells at Maikop, um, but got stalled before they got to Grozny and were a long ways from Baku. But then they headed uh, simultaneously another army group uh, into the east and north to Stalingrad, and uh, they got stopped in both. They got stopped short of Grozny, and they got stopped in Stalingrad. And from the Soviet point of view, there was an aspect of the German invasion operation in 1942 that was very obvious. Germany's allies, Romania, Hungary, and Italy, were being drawn on by the Germans on a very much larger scale than in 41, because the Germans had suffered enormous numbers of losses. And if they were going to expand their area of control, they needed lots more troops. And what this meant as a practical matter was that from the Soviet point of view, you could launch offensives against the German allies and thus cut off the German troops that were advancing. It is not a coincidence in my judgment that the big operation Uranus that destroyed, that first surrounded and then destroyed the German army and mostly German forces in Stalingrad, that the ones who were being thrust through to make this possible were Romanians and Hungarians. Not that they didn't fight, but they were not as well equipped, not as experienced mm. as the German forces or as the Russian forces. And so the German forces fighting in and around Stalingrad, Paulus's uh, Sixth Army, were surrounded and eventually, in February of 43, surrendered. Mm. Of course, another thing that happens, and this is a few months after Stalingrad, when it 
Soviet Union started to build back is that Churchill and the Allies, they realized that they need Stalin in order to win. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the first Tehran conference, which is the famous where Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin met for the first time, I believe. Well, <clears throat> from the day the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, Churchill decided to help them. The more Germans fought on the Eastern Front, and the more they were clobbered there, from the British point of view, the better it was. Roosevelt took the same line. He arranged for what had been passed by the Congress as the Lend-Lease Act, to be extended in application to the Soviet Union. There were problems and so on in this. I don't want to go into that, but both the British and the Americans were helping the Soviets. But from the Soviet point of view, they were doing most of the fighting. And Churchill was much too polite to tell Stalin that this was his doing. He had helped the Germans conquer Norway, Denmark, Holland, Belgium, and France. That was his brilliant move. Mm -hmm. And so turning, returning to a Western front was going to be very difficult. And there was a major difference in this regard between Churchill and Roosevelt. Churchill remembered rather well what happened on the Western Front in the First World War. He had been there. And <clears throat> was very much concerned about the Mediterranean route to India and British possessions elsewhere, and was therefore mainly interested in the Mediterranean. Gymnast, as it was originally called, and then Torch, the invasion of Northwest Africa, was originally Churchill's idea. And his emphasis thereafter always was on the Mediterranean. Roosevelt and his military advisors from the beginning of America's uh, being forced into the war by Germany remembered that American troops had helped the Allies win the war in France, not in North Africa, but in France. And I've always been of the opinion that it was not a coincidence that in 1944, when Roosevelt was going to run for a fourth term, he picked of all people 
as his vice presidential candidate, Harry Truman, who had been in the American Armed Forces and fought on the Western Front in the First World War. And so many of the top American military leaders also had had the experience, not that it was a happy, joyous one, but I mean, <laughs> they had the military experience of the Western Front. And when they looked at how the United States could defeat Germany, it was not hopping around the globe, but crossing the English Channel, fighting in France, and driving into the major German industrial area where their weapons were being produced. Mm -hmm. And there was no secret about the fact that that was in Western Germany and would be the immediate target after the liberation of France and Belgium. So you had this endless argument. And when for the first time, uh, Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill meet, they had tried, the Americans and Brits had tried to meet with Churchill before. When in early 43, Churchill and Roosevelt met in Casablanca, uh, they tried to get Stalin to go there, but he wouldn't. And Churchill went to Moscow a couple of times, but uh, he was not going to go a hmm. long ways from the front. And that's how they picked Tehran, which was the capital of whether you want to call it Persia or Iran, which to make sure that there could be supplies had been occupied by the northern uh, Iran, by the Russians, southern by the British back in 1941. So instead of meeting in various places that had been talked about before, they met in Tehran. It, it is also, I'm sorry for the, this, the disturbing you again, but it's also worth mentioning that Stalin was terrified of flying the plane and he refused to enter a plane. So he had to take it, it had to be somewhere he could go by land as well because he did not like flying at all. Yeah. But uh, uh, he, he, he could have uh, met uh, Roosevelt in Siberia or Alaska without flying, if that mm. was what he wanted. But in any case, they met, and Roosevelt and Stalin, who had not met before, uh, Churchill and Stalin had met a couple of times. 
but uh, Roosevelt and Stalin had not met and discussed. And although officially, officially in Quebec before Tehran, the British and Americans had agreed on an invasion of Europe, Western Europe, in uh, early 44. In Tehran, by promising this to Stalin, uh, or agreeing with Stalin on this, it was something that Churchill was going to find very difficult to get out of. That didn't keep him from trying, but uh, it settled the idea that, yes, the Western powers would land forces in France and fight a substantial portion of the German army there. Now, I want to go back to the Western invasion of, sorry, the Allied invasion of Western Europe in a second. But I do want to talk, I want to finish actually on the Asian side and I want to go back a little bit back in time again because I'm one another turning point we talked about how Stalingrad was a turning point for the German invasion of Soviet Union. But I want, of course, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about already, which is the Battle of Midway, which is as it was kind of an essential battle for a turning point of the Jap of the Asian Pacific War. So what, let's talk. What, what? So let's talk about. Let's talk a little bit. I try to lead you in. I'm sorry, but. I didn't make it clear, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the turning point and the invasion on the Asian Pacific War side of the war. Oh, well, the Japanese advanced very rapidly, but their efforts to the south were halted at uh, Coral Sea in May of 42. And at Midway in June of 42, and thereafter they are on the defensive. The allies have problems uh, trying to keep the connection to China through Burma open. I don't want to go into the details of the Burma Road and the Lido Road and the endless back and forth there, um, but they do provide some assistance to the Chinese. But uh, the Americans decide on a two-front thrust, one across the Central Pacific, one the Southwest, to get close to Japan itself. And the general assumption is that they will eventually, with the assistance of Russia after Germany is defeated, and Stalin promises that, invade and occupy Japan as they have invaded and occupied Germany. And that, that will take, generally speaking, a year and a half longer after the war in Europe is completed. We know today that the war ends 
a few months after, not a year and a half after, but that's because of the atomic bombs. And if one asks how come the commander, General Curtis LeMay, who sends the airplanes with the two upon it, with the atomic bombs, is afterwards given the highest decoration that Japan can give to a foreigner, one has to remember that this excluded an allied set of landings in Japan. Olympic landing on Kyushu by the Americans in November of 45, Coronet by the Americans and Brits in Tokyo Bay in 46, and a Russian landing after taking the Sakhalin Islands on Hokkaido and after the occupation of Hokkaido uh, of Honshu. So you not only don't have the 20 million casualties that the Japanese government agreed it would suffer, you also don't have in Japan, as you did in Germany, a Soviet zone of occupation. They do get back what the Japanese had taken earlier in the century, the southern part of Sakhalin uh, and the Kuril Islands and a couple of tiny islands off Hokkaido, but uh, that they're still arguing over. But unlike Germany, which is occupied from different areas and then divided into zones, and becomes two countries for half a century. Japan does not get divided into zones of occupation. It's one country from the beginning. And the people there conceive for themselves. There's no secret about the fact that there is no Soviet zone of occupation of Japan as there is, and no communist state as there is in East Germany until <laughs> the 1990s. Hmm. I, I want to ask, because one another one that would be essential for the Asian Pacific, a gen, general, I'm sure you you know, um, again, who I'm referring to is, of course, MacArthur. So, what, what, how important was MacArthur? Of course, he will be important in later in, in, in making sure that Hirohito stays on the throne after the new nuclear bomb is dropped. But under the Asian Pacific War, what, how important was MacArthur to the victory of the Asian side? Well, MacArthur was important first in uh, he had been sent after being chief of staff of the American Army, he had been sent to the Philippines in organizing things there. He made what most people agree was a mistake in changing the strategy in the Philippines, but at least there was a good deal of fighting. And the idea of a 
uh, offensive in the Southwest Pacific, uh, which he led, and on the whole, I think most people think led uh, effectively. And because he led it effectively, uh, and the other main thrust, American thrust, was commanded by an admiral, Nimitz, obviously the occupation of Japan was going to be led, both if it was fighting and if it was not fighting, by MacArthur. And so uh, when uh, Japan was occupied, and I was there as an American soldier, uh, yes, there was a British Commonwealth occupation force, but there was no British zone. And there were American troops and British and Australian and New Zealand, goodness knows what else, troops. But there was one American army, the 8th, and there was one allied commander. Please note, SCAP, Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, and that was MacArthur, who until 1952, when because of the peace treaty, the occupation forces all left, uh, this was a very different arrangement from the one in Germany, where there were the zones, and then eventually two countries. Uh, there was one country, and <clears throat> while there was and still is this argument over those two tiny islands off Hokkaido, uh, basically speaking, uh, Japan was occupied as a whole, and the head of the occupation as a whole was Douglas MacArthur. Uh, he also, I think the evidence is pretty good, would have liked to have become American president. But uh, there was some support for that in this country at the time, but not enough to make it go. He was more a general, right? He wasn't really a politician. What? I can't. He, he, he was more of a general, right? He wasn't really a politician in, in that sense. That's right. Sorry, uh, just a second. Right, I wish I could go more into more details of the Asian Pacific War, but and we've been speaking for over two hours already, so I don't think we have time. So let's just, of course, go to the Allied side in Europe and talk about one of the most important battles of the war, which is D-Day. And I had have actually had family myself who fought in the battle who survived in D-Day. He's not alive today, but he was on D-Day. He was my great great grandfather on my mother's side. I think. But that, but you know, according to historians, Hitler knew that the Allies were coming for D-Day, but he chose not to do anything about it. What what was the cause that he didn't chose not? To do anything about D-Day when he knew that the, the Allies were coming across the Mediterranean. I'm sorry, I cannot 
understand your I'm, I'm so I'm so so sorry for uh, if you don't understand me and I, I try to speak slower and but, so you know Hitler he knew the Allied were coming right he knew about D Day and so why well, did he choose not to do anything about it because this and again there is many turning points of the war but this is arguably one of them as well so what why did he choose not to do anything about D-Day not to do anything about what D-Day the, the allied invasion of Norman of Normandy well well he, he and his associates had been uh, systematically and deliberately misled by the allies into thinking that the invasion would be in the Calais area. Uh, ironically, Hitler was not quite as sure of this as some of his, the others, the military, and therefore had insisted on some defenses in Normandy. But uh, the assumption and hope was that once, when the Allies came or tried, they would be crushed. And that uh, his commanders had sufficient forces to crush them and drive them into the, back into the sea. That that kind of operation, uh, that is to say, a massive invasion and uh, coast, was a difficult business. And uh, in the West, uh, the uh, Germans had substantial forces. And uh, what was further the case was that these forces contained troops who had, for the most part, considerable combat experience. Whereas, obviously, the overwhelming majority of the British, Canadian, and American soldiers who were going to be landing someplace or other across the channel were going to be in their first battle. And therefore, the experienced Germans might well be, he hoped, crush them and drive them into the sea. And uh, similarly, the commanders whom he had for this, Rommel and Rundstedt, had commanded all kinds of forces in the war and had lots of experience in that war. It's true that Eisenhower and, and several of the other American and British commanders had had experience in North Africa, but nothing like the military experience of Rundstedt and Rommel. <laughs> So, and, and, and uh, some other generals. So Hitler was hopeful that uh, the invading forces could be driven back into the sea. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this would be a great tragedy for 
the German Wehrmacht and the German armed forces. But I want to take for a second and go into the, we mentioned him and then our thought about uh, the North African campaign briefly. And I want to talk about Operation Valkyrie, which was the plot, failed plot to assassinate and overthrow the Nazi government. The, so if you tune for a little bit, talk about Operation Valkyrie when Stauffenberg tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Well, there were several attempts on Hitler's life. Uh, in November of 39, Elsa had a bomb where Hitler was going to speak, but Hitler didn't speak quite as long as he usually did, and therefore when the bomb went off, he was gone. The, uh, there were a couple of other efforts. One when an officer in army group center on the Eastern Front and a friend had a bomb put into Hitler's plane, the plane that was taking Hitler from one part of the uh, occupied Soviet Union and military headquarters to another. But the bomb did, was in the plane, but didn't go off. Uh, this the, was the bomb that was hidden in the wine, right? This, this was the bomb that was hidden in the wine bottle that they tried to assassinate him with, right? I can't make out what you're saying. Never mind. I, 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 never mind. It's uh, not important. Keep, keep, keep well, going. The, on the 20th of July, uh, a high-ranking officer uh, left the bomb in the headquarters, which uh, was by that time and then that occasion in East Prussia uh, not a, uh, a cement building, a strong building where an explosion might have killed everybody in it, but <laughs> not only was it where the walls not that strong, but uh, one of the officers had for convenience pushed the briefcase that had the bomb in it a little further away. And so when it went off, a couple of people who were close by were killed, but Hitler was only very slightly wounded. And uh, those aligned with Stauffenberg, with the man who left the bomb, and who were in Berlin, thought that Hitler had been killed because they, he didn't, they were told the bomb went off, but they were all immediately arrested and subsequently executed. So uh, this was a procedure. And there is an interesting, in my opinion, follow-up aspect. There was a special court created, a bunch of half a dozen or so judges, military, who would judge those military who were accused of participating in this. And what I think is interesting is that with one exception, every one of these high-ranking officers who were on the court 
had been and was accepting regularly secret money from near Adolf Hitler. Mm. So you had a court where all but one <laughs> of the judges was being steadily accepting and getting bribes from one side. That was the German army's Supreme Court. It tells mm. us something about the German military leadership of World War II. With few exceptions, they were all regularly accepting huge tax-free bribes from their dear leader, Adolf. Now, let's talk about, and um, I think it's time we finish this episode soon, because as I mentioned, we I'm spoke, sorry, I cannot follow. We talked for over two hours now, so I think it's time that we close the episode quite soon. So let's talk about the race to Berlin, because as you know, uh, Churchill famously wrote on a blanket where the Soviet sphere of influence would be with Eastern Europe, and then the rest would be under Western influence. And but they they want the Allies wanted to come first to Berlin, and but and so did the Soviets. So let's talk about the race, about the first first group, if you will, to Berlin, the Soviet and Allied race. Was there ever a chance? that the Allied would win the race and be first in Berlin? It's conceivable, but not very likely. Keep in mind that the, so that the Red Army was advancing and was advancing rapidly and effectively. And that the thing which the allies, Eisenhower as commander, were most concerned about was getting to the Baltic so that the Red Army would not take Denmark. And the Western allies transfer some extra troops to Montgomery at commanding the northern part of the Western allies advance so that the American and British troops could touch the Baltic Sea and keep the Red Army out of Denmark. Hmm. We won that race, and that necessarily meant that the Russians would win the race to Berlin. Hmm. Now, it's, I made a while ago an episode on the Soviet invasion of Berlin, and we spoke about atrocities and rape committed by the Red Army on the way that they raped innocent women and even elderly women on the on the way. Is there, I'm not saying the Allied are innocent probably, but is there, do we know if the Allied as well committed atrocities to European women or is there very little on the scale that the, not on the, maybe not on the scale that the Soviet troops did, but was there rape and atrocities committed to 
German girls as well on the Allied side? Do we know of this? Well, I mean, there were bad incidents. And there were undoubtedly lots of them on the Russian side. And no, no argument over that. And there were some on some soldiers misbehaved on the, in the British and American and Canadian armies. And uh, by this time, and free French armies. Mm. I'm so, not quite. Uh, so what I mean. So let's talk about, of course, Hitler's final days in the bunker, because those are quite fascinating as well. And his final, and the, I want to ask, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, they're underground. What do you think of the portrayal? And I asked this in the our episode on the Soviet invasion of Berlin as well, I think. But if you've seen the the downfall, the German movie that portrays Hitler's last days in the bunker, what what is your opinion of it? And how how well does it portray? Maybe if not well, but how does it portray the last days in the final in of Adolf Hitler? in the bunker? Well, I mean, he is still trying to run the military operations. And uh, uh, he, it was his opinion uh, that that was the place from which to do it. He knew, of course, that the Russians were close by and that the Western allies were not that close, but uh, he was going to stay there. And he had made up his mind to that effect quite a bit of time before he was trapped in there. And of course, by the time he is in there, we tend to forget that the Russian army had the, the two army groups, one had pushed the north of Berlin and one south, had met on the other side. And that Berlin, therefore, was surrounded by uh, Russian troops. And there was no way that unless uh, he wanted to fly out, there was no other way to get out. And while a couple of people flew in, Hitler never wanted to fly out. It was very clear. It's very clear from the evidence that we have that he had decided to stay in Berlin and that uh, if things went wrong, he would commit suicide. He had been shown pictures of Mussolini and Mussolini with his mistress killed and hung upside down in Northern Italy by the partisans. And nothing like that was gonna happen to him and the woman he married while he was at the very end in the bunker. So they were both going to commit suicide and their bodies were gonna be burned. And that's what happened. 
So let's talk about his final surrender because he it wasn't quite over yet. It cre didn't create werewolves as they were called to fight back in, in case of an allied occupation. So let's talk about the final surrender of the German armed forces and then end to World War Two. Well, Hitler wrote since he was planning and did to commit suicide and did, he wrote a will. And that included, particularly, the designation of the head of the German Navy, Admiral Dönitz, to be his successor as president and chancellor, and a batch of others. And that, when publicly announced and published, Dönitz was informed of this. He was up in the north and uh, he took over uh, the military. I think for the most part was slightly surprised that of all people Hitler picked was the head of the Navy, but there was no question that that's what he had done. And the head of the Navy had accepted that and was trying to get things organized and a government set up. And he then authorized first the surrender uh, in the West to the uh, Western allies. And since the Russians didn't quite accept that, but wanted another time, one done in Berlin, so Donitz uh, had that done. And so you had a complete surrender. And uh, obviously the German commanders were perfectly happy to have their troops stop shooting. And you will understand that the soldiers in the Russian, British, American, French, Canadian, and whatever else armies were perfectly happy to have the shooting stop. And so there may have been an, an accident or a mistake here or there, but it all ended very quickly. And in those areas where the Germans were still in control, most of Norway and some other places, it all went very, very quickly. Uh, I, and nobody wanted to shoot and be shot at anymore. That I shouldn't. No. I'm sorry that I just should mention as well, and this is the really fun fact that the Soviet Union actually were the first to invade northern Finnmark and liberate Norway. The Soviet Union was the first one in Norway the liberation to enter to come enter the Norwegian country yeah. and liberate Norway. Yeah. Yes, as I mentioned before, they in the last part of the war were invading Norway from the land side, so to speak. Uh, Unlike what Hitler anticipated and what Churchill several times hoped to do and planned to do as Operation Jupiter, 
was a landings in Norway. But that isn't the way it went in the end. And of course, something we someone we haven't mentioned so far, and and so I'm sorry, sorry what? someone we haven't mentioned so far, and I'm sorry for forgetting about him completely, is Hermann Göring, who took over when he realized he because he was up until this point, as you mentioned, the second in command to Hitler, and he thought that he would take over and run the German run Germany. After Hitler, when he was informed that he was going to commit suicide, but this outraged Hitler, so he denounced Göring and he would he stripped him of all his ranks and medals. Yeah, well, he he wanted Göring arrested, dismissed from all of his positions, and arrested, and. Uh, Instead of the head of the Air Force as a successor, as was originally intended, he shifted, the tossed the going out of all of his jobs and uh, put the head of the Navy instead. And we should also mention that Himmler as well in early 1945, I think it was 1945, that he freed the prisoners of Auschwitz. Not out of sympathy or a change of heart, but that he was hoping to negotiate with the Allies, though he ended up killing himself in cyanide pill, trying to escape disguised as a woman. Well, Himmler is arrested by the Allies and then commits suicide. And I wanted to ask you as well, before we round this up, because under the Nuremberg trial, when Göring was arrested, and one of the few had has stated in this jail to be arrested, I think he was asked. I don't remember by who, but he was asked, "What do you think about the Battle of Britain?" And he said, "Supposed to have said, I think it was a draw." Is he right about this? That he said it was a draw in the Battle of Britain. How do you think he's far off, or do you, it, it, does he have a point there? Well, it did sound, it was from his point of view nicer to say that and to say we were defeated. The reality was, of course, that the Germans were defeated. Mm. So, thank you so much That's for coming. Mm. And I think we're going to round it up there. And we've been speaking for almost three hours now. So, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before I go, where can people find your books if they want to read what you have written on your work? And do you have any websites or links you want me to put in the description below? Is there a question? I'm sorry. Do, do you want Do you want me to? Where Where can if people want to read your books? Where can they find your books online or on your website? Or do you have anything you want me to share? I don't think I don't know if any of my books are on uh, online, but they're in all major libraries. Uh, certainly, but and not only a world at arms, but also the more recent, uh, very short introduction to the Second World War. Uh, which I did for Oxford, 
and uh, these other books, Visions of Victory, uh, Hitler's Foreign Policy, The Road to World War II, uh, lots of my books are available in libraries and in bookshops. Thank you so much for coming again. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. My name is Alan. This has been Well That Age 12. We are available on Instagram under Well That Age 12, on Twitter under Well That Age 12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. And please check out some more episodes if you like this one. Definitely have some more I think you will rather enjoy. Please write a review on Apple or iTunes. If you do have the time, that would help us out quite a lot. Thank you. And again, thank you for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.